This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Every campaign cycle has its share of House special elections, and this year has been no exception. Sometimes members of Congress get picked to serve in the administration, and that creates a vacancy. Sometimes people leave for the private sector, and sometimes people die. That's led to a total of seven vacancies in a closely divided U.S. House so far this year. And the special election campaigns allow the political parties to get involved, to test messages, and for different power brokers to exercise influence, or at least try. That includes the campaign committees and even former presidents like Donald Trump. CQ Roll Call Politics Editor Herb Jackson and Inside Elections reporter and analyst Jacob Rubashkin join us on Political Theater to help take stock of where we are in this special time and to divine the special lessons we can learn. Herb, welcome. And Jacob, this is your first appearance on Political Theater. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So let's let's start with the most recent special elections that we saw, which were actually special primary elections in Ohio. In Ohio, uh, Ohio's 15th district, where Steve Stivers left to become the CEO of the Ohio Chamber of Commerce. And in Ohio's 11th district, which is a Cleveland area seat, uh, that Marsha Fudge left to become the Housing and Urban Development Secretary in the Biden administration. Uh, who would like to start, Herb or Jacob, about uh, what happened in these primary elections? Well, we, we I guess I guess Herb's going to start, Jacob. <laughs> 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 Go ahead, Herb. We we basically had a blue seat and a red seat, right? right? The uh, the Fudge seat, Marsha Fudge won, but with eighty percent of the vote in November. The Stivers seat won with sixty three percent of the vote in November. Um, Trump did a little worse than Stivers. Biden did about the same as Fudge. Um, and what we had in the Democratic primary was a, a fight between, in the Fudge seat, the 11th district, was a fight between the Justice Democrats, our revolution, Bernie side of the party. In fact, uh, Nina Turner was the uh, campaign manager and then chairman for Bernie Sanders' presidential campaigns in 2016 and 2020 um, against Chantel Brown, who was a Cuyahoga County commissioner um, she had the backing of the Congressional Black Caucus, and Turner raised a whole lot of money early and was seen as the favorite, put out a poll showing herself as the favorite, but Brown ended up pulling it out. She won 50-44. Uh, you know, the Congressional Black Caucus did a lot of trips into the district uh, and pitched it really as, you know, this is somebody who can work with Joe Biden. I tried to sell it as a Biden race. Um, and it was it was an interesting result for the Democrats because you know you, you you saw people wanting to not give Biden a problem in the House, where right now the margin is only three votes. On the Republican side, it was Mike Carey, uh, who was a businessman who had the backing of President Trump. We're shifting. Yeah, we're shifting to Ohio, Ohio fifteen now. Right. right. Yeah. Just, and uh, the there were a. a there were a lot of people running in both in both races, but but the, the Trump candidate won with thirty seven percent of the vote. 
technically 63% of the people voted for someone else, right? However, the president took this as a win. Uh, former president took this as a win, and it was a win for the guy he backed. Uh, his next closest competitor only got 13%. So it was it was pretty over pretty early for both of these races. And and Jacob, I mean, we we pay a lot of attention to these races because this is what we do for a living, right? Uh, at Inside Elections, you yeah. you you make sure that everybody understands the dynamics of these races at, at CQ and Roll Call. We make sure that people know who the you know who's running and where they might go with with their votes and so forth. Uh, what what are some of the things that stood out to you with these two races? Because you know, as, as Herb said, the you know we, we had some dy- power dynamics going on. The Congressional Black Caucus on one side, the the squad, if you will, on on the other, in in Ohio eleven with Marsha Fudge. Marsha Fudge is a former chairwoman of the of the Congressional Black Caucus. So what what are some of the? I mean, we we know that this is probably going to be most likely a blue seat. But what do you what do you make of that from from your you know from where you're sitting uh, in looking at these races for uh, inside elections. And we'll get to Stiver's for the Ohio 15 race in a sec. Both of these races, both of these primaries and their outcomes to me are just another data point pointing toward the nationalization of congressional races, which is something that we've seen happen all across the country, not just in Ohio. I think if we look at the Ohio 11th district, there was a tendency um, to ascribe from the beginning this kind of Bernie versus Hillary, Bernie versus Biden, uh, framing to the race because it fits so neatly between Nina Turner as kind of one of the most prominent Bernie Sanders surrogates and Chantel Brown backed by people like Hillary Clinton and the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, But what was really core to Nina Turner's campaign, at least at the outset, was not so much her role as a Bernie Sanders surrogate uh, or as a champion for, uh, you know, the, the big ticket progressive items like Green New Deal, Medicare for All. It was her connections and deep relationships as a member of the Cleveland political community, as a city councilwoman, as a state senator uh, long before she ever became a a national name. And it was those uh, relationships and that kind of recognition that made her the front runner at the beginning, as as well as kind of her national donor network and and things such as that. Uh, But it was not enough to get her over the finish line. And what we ended up seeing was that uh, the Chantel Brown campaign from the very beginning said, the way we win this race is by making it a Bernie versus Biden race, and we're the Biden candidate. This is a Biden district. That's what we need to do. And and to their credit, they executed pretty flawlessly. And in the end, it did not matter that Nina Turner had 20 years as a local politician, that she had uh, a a reputation um, within the district as a, a fighter and as someone who uh, was not beholden to you know the establishment or any interests that didn't end up mattering at the end of the day uh, to a majority of voters. The national framing, the national way of thinking about uh, the political trends, uh, was dominant. And and we're talking about you know differences in style in terms of how you know the either one of these women would have voted with the Democratic caucus. I mean they're they're really pretty aligned in terms of like their public policies. Um, you know, Brown also has, uh, you know, experience in the Cleveland political community. So it's the, I, I'm fascinated, like, as you said, like that this is a national framing, you know, even though both of these, both of these candidates would have probably governed, you know, like pretty, pretty closely. So let's talk about the Ohio 15, uh, the, the, the dynamic, uh, if lack of better term, the Trump factor, uh, you know, Herbie mentioned that the, the gentleman who won the primary and is the favorite to win the general election, Mike Carey is a coal lobbyist and he had the backing of the former president. Um, I mean, it, it, 
Jacob, did do you think that Kerry, I mean, really benefited from I don't know what, how many candidates were there, like eleven or something like that? I mean, the, the, is is that really what you know may may have put him over the top that he had Trump's backing and there he had so many other opponents? Absolutely, I think the president, uh, the former president, excuse me. Um, We've both done that now. <laughs> <laughs> it's only five minutes in. <laughs> uh, the former president uh, can take uh, fair. Fair, fair credit for for Mike Carey's win. Um, you know, obviously, wide field only required a plurality to win. There's no runoff or threshold uh, requirement in in this primary. Uh, but the reality is, Mike Carey is a guy who has uh, tried three times before to run for office, all three times unsuccessfully. Uh, was known in kind of the political and lobbyist community, but very much not a known political figure otherwise, running against some really established current and former state legislators uh, who were well-funded, who had high-profile endorsements. And the fact that Kerry was able to dominate the way he did, he won all but one county in this district, um, and you know, uh, nearly tripled up his, his uh, next closest opponent. Um, yeah, I think this is, this is absolutely because of... Uh, the the Trump endorsement and the money that the Trump super PAC came in uh, toward the end of the race to to support Kerry with. Let's talk about some of that uh, PAC spending because the former president uh, has been raising a lot of money um, in in his post presidential life uh, to the tune of you know I mean I I think I get a fundraising pitch uh, about eight or nine times a day and I'm you know I'm a uh, nonpartisan journalist, uh, so I can't imagine what the uh, the faithful are getting. But Herb, you noticed something about some of the spending uh, that, it, while it may have been significant for some of the markets uh, for these races and special elections, it wasn't significant in terms of like the the gross amount compared well, to what Trump has. Well, Trump had uh, his report that came out a, a week ago that covered the first six months of this year showed that one of his committees, just one of his committees, had $62 million in it. And so the specials in Ohio were on August 3rd, and between July 27th and August 3rd, his PAC only spent $417,000 in that district, which means for all the weeks before that, they spent nothing. Then they cut an ad about a week before Election Day, and they did some get out the vote phone calls over the weekend and on the day of election because you know Republican voters only vote on election day they're afraid to vote early because that's fraudulent i guess um so the but you know sarcasm the, noted uh, but for, this for, also, those, for those of you uh, not seeing herbs uh, twinkle twinkle in yeah. his eyes right here in the in the podcast studio <laughs> but this also not to jump ahead but this also followed by a week the loss of the Trump back candidate in a Texas special where uh, it was a, a runoff election, uh, which meant that some Democrats got to vote, um, and you know that the, the Trump back candidate lost. And in that race, Trump only spent a hundred thousand dollars on his back preferred candidate, the, the Make America Great Again Action Committee, I should say, which is a super PAC, which is different from you know Save America, which is the president's leadership PAC. So there are all these these pots of money that the the president can former president controls and can put out there but he certainly didn't go heavy into that texas race uh and it looks like after they looked like they were going to lose that race they put more money into the ohio race so we didn't get a back-to-back embarrassment and that's going to be the question right if republicans start to see hey it doesn't matter if i have trump's backing or not i can either still win or lose his power dis- diminishes 
So he had to put out statements the day after the Ohio primary. It was like, we won. It, you know, and don't worry about Texas. Another great guy won. He was still, you know, backing me. So I won. It, it actually says I won the primary in Texas. The special election, the runoff. You mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a good segue to uh, to talk about the Texas race, Jacob. Uh, I mean, this is the vacancy that was created earlier this year when Congressman Ron Wright, a Republican, uh, died. He was the uh, first sitting member of Congress to die of COVID complications. Uh, one of his, uh, this set off a special election. One of uh, one of the candidates was his widow. Uh, and then, uh, the you know, there was a sort of a jumble in the, uh, the original runoff or the original uh, special election, which led to this runoff between uh, to let, let, let's pick it up there with those two candidates and the, and some of the dynamics that, that Herb was, was talking about that resulted in, in Jake Elsey winning the seat. So the, the first thing you have to understand about the, the Texas six special election was that this was not a, a traditional Republican primary because of the way Texas does its special elections, uh, Democrats and independents and people registered with other parties uh, could participate. So uh, this outcome was not necessarily the, the cleanest test of a Trump endorsement within the Republican primary electorate. Uh, the second thing that you can draw from this uh, result is that um, very few people turned out. Uh, you know, it's hard to get to the final result without accepting that uh, turnout here was abysmal. Um, and the uh, unlike in a lot of the special elections we saw, certainly when Trump was president, uh, voters are just not as engaged as they once were. Um, so you should be cautious about kind of drawing major conclusions from from a race where only forty thousand and change. Uh, people even bothered to show up to vote. All that said, um, to me, this is one of the clearest uh, examples of of something that you know my boss and our our friend and colleague Nathan uh, likes to talk about a lot, which is that candidates matter. Um, and you know you can have kind of all the structural factors in your advantage, all the runoff uh, rules, all of the endorsements. Uh, and if you're not the right candidate for the moment, you can still lose. And this is clearly what happened to Susan Wright. I think from the very beginning, uh, Republicans in the district were unimpressed with how she campaigned. Uh, they were not liking kind of what what they were seeing from her in terms of her presence on the campaign trail, her ability to connect with voters. Um, or her ability to kind of state a cohesive case for why she should uh, be able to succeed uh, her husband, uh, d other than, you know, she she will continue on Ron Wright's legacy. Um, Jake Elsey, on the other hand, uh, comes in with a very solid campaign team, a superior fundraising operation, and a bio that is straight out of central casting for Republican candidates in, in this day and age, uh, coming from the state legislature, uh, a decorated fighter pilot um, who comes from one of the more rural parts of the district. And so he was able to uh, overcome a lot of the structural advantages Susan Wright had uh, in, in large part because he was simply a better candidate. And I think there are theories out there about, uh, you know, did he de benefit from Democratic support? I think there's some evidence to suggest that he did. Certainly the campaign uh, made a late play for Democratic voters. And when so few people are turning out, even small blocks of voters can uh, have an effect. Uh, but uh, I think the data is inconclusive uh, at the end of the day as to whether Democrats really swung this election as, as the 
the former president claimed, or whether it was just that Elsie was a better candidate and, and voters liked him better. Yeah, I would point out, I mean, Stephanie Aiken on our team was down in that district, spent a day with Jake Elsie, uh, spoke to consultants uh, who weren't working for his campaign, who said that he never left a room without more voters than he had coming in, which is always a test. The other thing you had was uh, Congressman Dan Crenshaw, who's another military veteran, you know, has an, shows his injuries from from the war. Um, he ran, he cut an ad uh, because the Club for Growth was running ads against Elsie, and he cut an ad that just said, they're lying to you, which was a very direct thing. And then the last thing was, you know, we can't figure out how much of a factor this is, but in a small turnout, you know, one voter that Stephanie interviewed in a room, an 85-year-old man who wouldn't give his name, says he wasn't going to vote for Susan Wright because he has a problem with women being in office. And to what extent is that part of a 40,000-voter electorate? You can't tell. I mean, I, I think that this is, this is the reason to, as frustrating as they can be, this is the reason to study these special elections because you realize just how many variables there are to, to sort of factor through and that, you know, you don't know, I mean, like whether the rural parts of the district, you know, are, are going to have the more, you know, the final say in something like this or whether Democrats are going to do these things or, or how much of Trump, you know, is, is going to, to weigh. And I mean... Jacob, one of the things I was thinking is that like another thing about special elections that I mean, some people may dread them because they're they siphon off money that in in off you know like off times, but no matter what, you get to kind of declare either declare victory or or dismiss it. You know, like if you won, it's because you're you're awesome, and if you lost, it's because well, you can't really divine anything from these elections anyway. <laughs> There, there's a built-in escape hatch. Uh, it, it is really choose your own adventure and, and no bad outcomes. Um, it, you know, th- there's always a way to spin the results in your favor. Uh, again, because the stakes are, you know, uh, intrinsically, the stakes are very low. We're talking about one seat here or there in districts that aren't particularly competitive. Uh, and, and all the higher stakes are kind of the in the narratives that we develop. Uh, but but what I would would what I would say to to Herb's point um, and kind of about Stephanie's interview with that voter, I think it's an interesting contrast in that Texas six election with an election, special election we saw even earlier in the year, Louisiana's fifth district, the similar situation where the the congressman elect, uh, Luke Letlow uh, died from coronavirus uh, before he was even able to take office. He he died in December. Uh, his widow, Julia Letlow, um, stepped into his place as as the the kind of establishment candidate, and she absolutely dominated the field. There was never any question that she would not win. And I think that is a testament to her as a campaigner. Again, um, you know, people who worked in that district were uh, w- would talk about how engaged she was as Luke was campaigning, and and how much. Uh, you know, more effort at the end of the day she put in, even though she was running a much easier race than than Susan Wright, how much effort she put into that race and it showed in the final results. Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that too because you know we have you know this is another one of those you know things that we we see, we tend to see in special elections not all of them but you see the particularly if there's a death you have have either the widow or the widower. Uh, frequently at least make some kind of play or at least be offered the chance to. And and you see these two very contrasting results uh, this time where you've got this, as you said, a very engaged candidate in Julia Letlow, who's now been sworn in and is now a member. Uh, and then in the other case of Susan Wright, I mean, it was a candidate candidacy that didn't work uh, for, for a variety of reasons, uh, despite there being perhaps, you know, some more name recognition and so forth. Um, one, one uh, we've got just a couple more um, special elections I wanted to mention. 
Uh, the, the, again, as you alluded to, uh, Jacob, the, the, not a lot of these are are particularly competitive from a Republican, could, could a Republican knock off a Democrat or vice versa, but they're just what they say about it. Um, one is the, um, the, in New Mexico's first district, Deb Holland uh, became the interior secretary for President Biden. Uh, there was a special election which resulted in the Democrat winning, Melanie Stansberry. Uh, that's not been a particularly competitive seat in recent cycles. Uh, the Any kind of Democrat would have been uh, a, a favorite, but the Democrats, the national Democrats, seem to be taking no chances whatsoever <laughs> in this, and they uh, they, they invested uh, for a a special election uh, in the spring. That's exactly right. Um, Democrats, uh, both Democrats and Republicans, talked up this district a lot as kind of a test case. But at the end of the day, it was only Democrats who really put their money where their mouth was uh, and and uh, put forth the resources necessary to, to put this one away uh, and really make a statement, which they did by Melanie Stansbury's margin. Uh, Republicans talked a big game about it, um, but they really did not uh, you know, lift a finger to, to help Mark Morris, the Republican nominee, um, and we're really treating that race as a, you know, if our message is good enough that we can really, you know, make a surprise here, then uh, we're fine with that. But, you know, we're, we're comfortable. We don't need to be winning seats like this if to take back the majority next year. Uh, whereas Democrats, you know, if they were uh, in danger of seats like this next year, uh, it's going to be an absolute bloodbath. So the incentives were a little bit different on each side. And I think we saw that play out in the, the fundraising and the, the spending and uh, eventually the results. Yeah. And it's not quite the same district, but Democrats were skunked in Texas and Florida in a couple of races they thought they'd had a chance in in 2020. And uh, I don't think they wanted to find out late that something was happening in New Mexico as well. Right, right. And especially, I mean, back to the 2020 election, I mean, the the Trump campaign kept on making noises about investing in New Mexico. Uh, it never quite turned out, you know, for, for them. It didn't result. I mean, Biden won New Mexico fairly easily. But uh, as Herb says, you never want to get caught unaware, uh, as they did in those uh, Miami-Dade area seats uh, in, in 2020. Uh, two more uh, special elections I want to mention. Uh, the Louisiana 2, this was when Cedric Richmond uh, left uh, to become a senior advisor in the Biden White House. We had some of the same dynamics as Cleveland, uh, in, or the Marsha Fudge seat in Ohio 11 playing out. Um, Richmond had endorsed uh, 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 State Senator Troy Carter, uh, to replace him, uh, but Carter did not have the field to himself. Uh, uh, Karen, another state senator, Karen Carter-Peterson, who was a former chair of the Louisiana Democratic Party, she gave him a run, uh, and it was some of the same vibes. Uh, you know, uh, the, uh, Peterson tried to, you know, make sure that liberals were on her side, that, she, that they knew that she uh, supported the Green New Deal. Richmond has sort of famously been on... Um, a lot of environmentalists, uh, bad guy uh, <laughs> lists, for lack of a better term, because he likes the oil and gas industry, uh, or he's just not like hostile to them. It's a very big part of Louisiana's economy, uh, and and Troy Carter won. Um, what I mean, that was earlier in the year. We have to like reach back on that, but we saw it, it's it's interesting to see some of those same dynamics uh, turn out, right, Herb? Yeah, I mean, right after Chantel Brown's victory was declared. 
Troy Carter put out a tweet and said, glad to see my endorsed candidate winning in Ohio, <laughs> uh, which I thought was a little like smacky. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, 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 it's a similar thing. You know, the Democrats are still, you know, leery of each other. You know, and that's the other thing. I mean, first of all, when you were talking about reading things into it, the big wild card everybody gets to play on all of these races is we don't know what the districts are going to look like next year. Uh, but the the other thing that's playing out here, and more in Ohio than in, in Louisiana, though, is, you know, you have veteran House members who are getting a little upset about getting challenged from the left. Um, and, and now you've got members like Danny Davis in Illinois, who's facing a primary challenger from from the Justice Democrats wing. You know, and, and maybe some of these these veterans are sitting there saying, well, let's figure out a way to, you know, like, Let's try testing these messages on primary audiences in, a, in this kind of lab and see how it, how it might play out if anybody comes at us. Uh, so I, I thought that that might be playing out as well. And Jacob, we're not really looking at a like again a, a, a seat being flipped to the Republican side necessarily because a lot of these challenges that Herb was mentioning, like Danny Davis, whether he's the <laughs> whether he's the nominee or somebody from Justice Democrats, that's that's a Chicago area seat that's been Democratic since the dawn of time. I mean, like we're this isn't affecting the uh, very much of the partisan balance that you're monitoring, is it? That's correct. Uh, none of these races uh, are, uh, with the exception of Texas 6 at the beginning, and obviously uh, when, when that became an all-Republican runoff, uh, that kind of fell off the map as well. But uh, very few, if any, of these races uh, speak to the uh, any changes in the, the balance of power in Washington, aside from filling vacant seats, which when the, when the majority is so narrow, uh, that matters. Uh, that's not something to be ignored. Having that extra vote is helpful. Uh, when you're trying to pass several trillion dollars in, in spending legislation, uh, perhaps, hypothetically. Um, but no, I think the, the, the reality is the, uh, this Ohio 15 seat is actually, which we haven't spent much time talking about at all, uh, this is, uh, by the numbers, the most competitive seat uh, after Texas 6 uh, that we're going to see. Uh, Ohio 15 was closer Um in the 2020 presidential election than New Mexico won was. Um, and yet, because of the midterm dynamics and, and kind of the sense the Democrats are on their heels, a lot of attention was paid to New Mexico 1. Uh, very little attention is being paid to Ohio 15. But uh, just going off of kind of the, the balance between Democrats and Republicans in these districts, that one is actually uh, the closest. And, and given that it's uh, so lopsided, that gives you a sense of you know, the, the, the tenor of special elections so far. Uh, one, one last thing, uh, which, uh, we, you know, bears attention, you know, a little bit later, perhaps this year, but in Florida's 20th district, we have a vacancy. Alcee Hastings, longtime member, uh, died earlier this year. Uh, the governor, Ron DeSantis, a Republican, decided to schedule the special election uh, primary for November and then the special election for January. And then, you know, that's for the old seat. <laughs> uh, there will be a new seat. I mean, it just sounds Sounds like a little bit of gamemanship to sort of deprive uh, Democrats of a seat. Um, but again, this is one of those things that regardless, it's probably going to be a Democratic seat, you know, unless there's they just gerrymander things so crazily that, you know, that <laughs> there will be an inevitable court challenge. Yeah. And the, the, the scary thing is that, the you know, Congress needs to deal with the fact of House vacancies. You know, we, we've seen... You know, coverage from our from our team about uh, you know, the the security issues of just like how many seats there's the three vote margin right now for the Democrats 
Uh, you know, that, that, that's a, that's a potential danger that, you know, some, someday Pelosi won't be speaker. Uh, if, if there are enough vacancies and they're in the right states where Republicans can decide when the election is being held, uh, you know, that, that, that's a strange thing that, you know, I'm not sure what Madison and friends were thinking, you know, back in, you know, the constitutional convention time. Well, uh, Jacob Herb, Thanks so much for walking through these special elections. I, I think that they're, they, they do offer some lessons and they also offer some, some hints at some of the battles that, we, that are to come. So thank you so much. And again, welcome first time for you, Jacob, on Political Theater. And he doesn't even Not get a, a coffee mug. <laughs> <laughs>